Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Tammy Freeman. In this episode, we will have some fun doing an Olympics-inspired quiz and travel down under to meet three astrophysicists who are searching for continuous gravitational waves. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is an official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? ECS's popular short course program begins in September with their core course titled Fundamentals of Electrochemistry, Basic Theory and Kinetic Methods. This course covers basic theory and application of electrochemical science. It's designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. ECS also offers four short courses during their fall meeting in October. Courses are only available virtually. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click short course to learn more. The Tokyo Olympics begins this week, and to celebrate, we've put together a physics-related quiz based on the 10 different events in the decathlon. Coming up, Quizmaster Laura Hiscott, our Reviews and Careers Editor, puts Physics World's Mateen Durrani to the test. So it's a couple of days before the Tokyo Olympics, and uh, to celebrate that uh, great sporting event in in Japan, um, I'm joined by Laura Hiscott, uh, Physics World Reviews and Careers Editor, who's created a fun Physics of the Decathlon quiz. Hi, Laura. Hi, Martin. So this quiz, do you want to tell us what it's about? There's there's 10 questions, aren't there? Yes, 10 questions. Um, Each one is based on a different event in the decathlon. Um, And the idea was just to have a bit of fun because there's obviously a lot of physics involved in sports and the techniques that athletes use um, and also the equipment that they use, the way that it's designed. Um, So I thought it would be fun to to have a go at um, getting people thinking about the physics behind sport. So what we're going to do is you're going to ask me your brilliant questions and uh, I'll try and answer them if I can. So they're not multiple choice. They're actually sort of open-ended questions. Um, So we'll have a go. I mean, I've never actually done any of the events in the decathlon. I think I once ran a 100 metres race. So I won't be speaking from any sort of experience, just my sort of physics knowledge. Um, But what about you, Laura? Have you ever done any actual athletic events? I used to do a bit of sprinting at school and at university. I enjoyed it. I, I wasn't always the best, but it was fun. All right, well, you got a head start. So, all right, so there's 10 questions. So you've arranged them uh, kind of day one and day two. So day one has five questions on the traditional five events that people do in the decathlon. And then day two is the second set of five events that people do on the second day. So there's one question per event. All right, so fire off. So I guess the first one is... I'm trying to remember. It's the 100 metres, isn't it? That's that's where it always starts with the decathlon. That's right. Um, so the question is about uh, automatic timing, because in 1977, they changed the rules 
um, and fully automatic timing became uh, mandatory for world records in the 100 meters, as opposed to timing done by people with stopwatches. And immediately after this change, the average, average recorded times of sprinters increased slightly um, before decreasing again. Do you have any ideas why, what, what caused that increase? So I presume before they had automatic timing, they used to have a person firing a gun, is that right? Yes. So... And people standing with stopwatches looking at when the athletes set off and when they cross the finish line. Okay. So was it a visual thing? Were people um, pressing the buttons too quickly in the past? And was that they were sort of giving, they were going too quickly when they thought somebody had finished past the finishing line? Was is that is that the idea? That's basically it. Yeah, because they could anticipate when somebody was going to cross the finish line. So they didn't have much of a reaction time added on to the end. Um, but at the start of the race, their reaction time was quite slow. So they pressed the button to start the timer um, a little bit after the, the sprinters actually set off. But because they could anticipate when they were going to cross the finish line, there wasn't that delay at the end. So this meant that they were actually underestimating the amount of time that the sprinters were taking. Ah, so there'd kind of been a bit of an error bar in the past and then that got corrected. Right. Okay. So, all right. So kind of got that half right. I think, I don't know how well I did. All right. So that's the, that's the hundred meters uh, that's sorted. So next event in the decathlon is the long jump. Um, so what's, what's your question for that? So if you watch some of the videos of the best long jumpers in the world taking off, some of them seem to carry on running in the air a little bit. They sort of cycle their legs for a few steps after they take off. Um, and this technique is called the hitch kick. And I was wondering if you know what the purpose of this is. Oh, so right. So you t- you've taken off and then you're running through the air and you sort of waggle your legs um, as, as you're going. Um, yes. I have no idea. Is it because you're scared or is it you're trying to get sort of forward momentum? Does that, is that about right? Is that? It actually does have something to do with momentum, especially oh. angular momentum. Ugh. So I'm trying to think if you didn't do it, I suppose, where are your legs? They're just sort of flailing around. So I guess, does it keep you stable on the, in, going in a yes, forward direction? Yes. Is, is that right? That's, that's the idea, I think, is that um, it keeps your body upright because when you take off, um, you generate a bit of angular momentum because your feet stop for, a li- for, for just a split second, um, but your body is continuing forward from the momentum from running up. Um, so this generates a bit of angular momentum, which would cause your body to rotate forward. But you want to land on your feet. You don't want to land on your face. So by cycling their legs, they take care of that an- angular momentum that they've generated um, and manage to keep their body upright. Oh, wow. But of course, no one's thinking about any of that. It's just kind of instinctive, isn't it? I guess if you're a long jumper. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or do you get taught to do that? Is that one something that is trained? You're trained to do that? Or is it I mean, I'm just trying to imagine if you would just instinctively do that when you take off, I guess. There is, um, there's a training element to it because there are some other techniques people use as well. The other main one is um, it's called a hang style where they, they kick their legs forward in front of them instead of cycling them. And this basically increases the, the length of their body, the, the kind of the moment of rotation. So that reduces the amount that their body rotates um, with the angular momentum so they can still land on their feet. So there are two different techniques, two different main ones. But there is an instinctive element to it as well, because 
if you think about when you lose balance, if if you're ice skating or something and you lose balance for a second, um, most people instinctively rotate their arms right to, right to keep upright. So it's quite similar to that. Okay, all right. So I'll I'll take your word for it on the ice skating. I've never done it. So uh, all right. So we've done the hundred meters. We've done the long <laughs> jump. Uh, so yeah, the next event in the decathlon is the shot put. Right. So what's your question about that? So I thought I'd include a couple of uh, calculations in there. So for the shot put, I looked up the the women's shot put and the the mass of it and the diameter. So it has a mass of about four kilograms, but the volume can actually vary slightly depending on what it's made of. The two most common metals that it's made of are iron and brass. So if we assume that it's made of solid iron or solid brass, what is the range of possible diameters that it could have? All right, so that sounds a bit more straightforward. That's like a sort of school calculation. So I guess the volume of a sphere Uh is four-thirds pi r cubed, and the density is the mass over Uh volume, so I'd sort of plug the numbers in, and um, I'd look up the density of the metals you mentioned, iron and brass, and, Uh uh, yeah, get get a range of diameters or twice the radius. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, that's that's what I did as well. So hopefully I did the calculations correct. so I used the density of iron as 7.86 grams per centimetre cubed, um, and that gives a diameter of 9.91 centimetres. Um, and using the density of brass as 8.73 grams per centimetre cubed, the diameter is 9.56 centimetres. Wow. And both of these are within the official range in the regulations, um, and this range is given as 95 to 110 millimetres. So um, both of them are within the range, but the range actually is a bit larger than that largest value. And that's just because it isn't always made of solid metal. Um, It's actually quite often made of a smaller lead weight, which is inside a metal casing of a lower density. So there's a a bit of a wider range of possible diameters because of that. So if I'm I'm in the Olympics, Laura, do you have like a range of balls you can pick up or shot puts that you can pick up? Is it like like when you go bowling, you sort of, oh, I fancy that that (laughs) big one or that chunky one, or is it it fixed for each event? I don't know, actually. That's a really good question. Bring your own bag of Um, special balls with you. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it, it did occur to me that maybe, you know, depending on the size of your hand, you might prefer one one ball over another but um i don't know whether they actually get to choose <laughs> all right all right or whether it's just provided <laughs> on the day all right so done the 100 meters done the long jump done the shot put so the next event uh so it's kind of the middle of the first day is the high jump so what, what's the question about the high jump what's your physics question about the high jump so this was actually the first one that i thought of um because it was it was the first physics of sport fact that I heard and I thought it was really cool. If you if you watch the high jump, um, most of them do this technique where they sort of slink over backwards, um, but they didn't always do that. That was first introduced at the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City um, by an American high jumper called Dick Fosbury, um, and it's now called the Fosbury flop technique. And before that, they used to sort of go over the bar upright and kick their legs over the bar. But most athletes can clear a slightly higher bar if they use the Fosbury flop technique. So do you have any idea what physical principle allows them to clear that higher bar using that technique? So what physical principle do high jumpers use when they sort of flop backwards over the bar? Uh... Uh Uh-huh. 
Oh, I have no idea. It's something. What the prince? What is there a principle? That's some sort of law of motion, or is it? Um, I don't know. Is angular momentum involved? No. Short, is it? No. It's not to do with angular momentum. No. Uh, it's more to do with um, the centre of mass. Presumably, the centre of mass goes higher up. Is that right? Um, so you can clear the bar. The the centre of mass. Um, actually goes lower interestingly when oh, it goes lower. when they do the fosbury okay. flop technique yeah yeah so this is the interesting thing is that when they do the fosbury flop technique there's no point at which their whole body is above the bar at every point most of their body is below the bar they sort of slink over it ah. um, so their center of mass is always below the bar um whereas when they went over upright and kicked their legs over um, there was a point at which their centre of mass was above. Obviously, there's a maximum amount of energy that any athlete can generate. So for the given amount of energy that they can generate, they can clear a higher bar using the Fosbury flop because they don't have to raise their centre of mass as much. So they kind of convert kinetic energy into potential energy. So I guess they have to run quite quickly and jump quite yes. forcefully up to get the height Um, but the Fosbury flop means your center of mass is kind of lower than if you did the other type of jump okay so you could sort of you can still clear the bar without having to actually raise your center of mass as much okay oh very clever all right (laughs) so I think I've got that I'll I'll take your word for that's what they do Uh, yeah so the final so we're at the final event of the uh, decathlon the first day is the the 400 meters now if there's one event i think i could probably safely do a 400 meters i think that's the one i could cope with uh so go on what's what's your what's your question about that one laura so for this one um i was thinking about the lanes um because in the 400 meter race the starting lane is staggered to make sure that all the athletes have the same distance to run um because obviously if they all ran a full track then the ones on the outside would have to run further than the ones on the inside why does world athletics limit the number of lanes for a standard track to 9 ooh i imagine it's because there's a certain distance of stagger between each between between each lane a sort of offset distance and presumably once you get past 8 you're so far forward that the ninth athlete would be more than 100 meters further than the first athlete is is that right it's it is to do with how things change as as the lanes go outwards and how the the track the outside track differs from the inside track would there be too much of a of a relaxed bend if it's too far round um so that's exactly right yeah so the um the curved part of the track is sharper on the inside lane than on the outside lane because of the increasing radius of curvature as you go from the inside to the outside. Um, and as you can imagine, it's a lot harder to run around a sharper bend than a sort of gentler curve. So having a gentler curve, if you're running in that track, it might convey an advantage to you. But this is generally considered a negligible difference. Um, but the IAAF considers that this difference uh, becomes significant if there are more than nine lanes in the track. But I presume there is a bit of a difference. Which, which is the best lane to be in if you are going to be on the uh, 400 metres? Is it is it best or always to be on the outside uh, for, the, for the reasons that you mentioned? Um, I don't know, really. I suppose there are other factors to take into account. I've heard that it can be helpful to be in the middle because... You can you've got a better view um, in your peripheral you. vision right, right. of where the athletes 
are to either side. But I don't know whether um, I've heard of that for the 100 metres. I don't know whether it also applies to the 400 metres. But I suppose there are multiple factors. Um, And the IAAF thinks that um, the radius of curvature changing only become significant at um, more than nine lanes. All right, okay. All right, so we're halfway through the quiz. We've done day one, right? So I've had a break. I'm back out from the Athletes' Village. It's come, I'm coming out to day two, and it's the start of day two. So first event is the 110-metre hurdles. Now, I've never done 110 metres for hurdles, of any any hurdles of any type, but go on, what's, what's your question, Laura? So um, this one's a, another calculation um, that I thought was interesting because with the hurdles, there's this idea of rhythmic running and how you have to be quite careful about um, your stride length to make sure that you get into a position where you're, you're close enough to clear each hurdle. The men's 110 metres hurdles has 10 hurdles spaced at 9.14 metres from one another. And ideally, the takeoff foot, according to most athletics coaches, um, should touch the ground between 2.1 to 2.2 metres in front of each hurdle. Um, And the athlete normally lands about one metre from the hurdle on the other side. Um, Most athletes take three steps between hurdles. Roughly how long should each stride be? Well, you've sort of said, what, nine metres between the hurdles, three strides and a jump. So maybe a quarter of that's a two and a bit meters is that right so yeah that's yeah when i did the calculation um myself i got roughly two meters per step so yeah that's that's an interesting difference between the hurdles and and a normal race is that they have to be very conscious of trying to maintain that that um length and i wonder whether that means that um some athletes would you know who have a natural stride length roughly that long have have an advantage oh, in the hurdles. So if that's your natural length, then you would do mm. do better anyway. Yeah, because yeah, you've always seen those hilarious videos where if you get it wrong, you really fall flat on your face, literally, and can sort of all the hurdles yeah. collapse. And, yeah. So getting that stride right. All right. So two, yeah, two and a bit meters sounds mm-hmm. about right. So the next event, six events out of ten, we're on to the discus. Um, so I'm standing in the uh-huh. uh, the big sort of you stand in a big net, don't you? And you sort of do a twist and fling the fling the discus out. So mm. what, what was the question for that? With the discus, this is kind of a general question about throwing anything, really. Um, And the theoretical optimal angle for throwing an object as far as possible in a very sort of basic model, looking at trajectories of um, parabolas, um, is 45 degrees to the ground. But most athletes um, have an optimal angle slightly smaller. They don't throw it at 45 degrees to the ground. They throw it but with a little bit of a more of a horizontal component. Um, so do you have any ideas why that might be? Well, I know footballers, when they do a throw-in, they throw it also sort of 32, 33 degrees. I, I remember that fact that right. it's not 45 as well if you want to get it as far as possible. Is it because you're standing off the ground um, and you're using your arms? I presume so it's not an ideal yeah. trajectory that you might imagine in a physics textbook uh-huh. starting from the ground. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So there are lots of um, factors in this one. One of them is that you're starting a little bit from higher up the ground. Um, so if you imagine the height at which you're throwing it is not the height at which it's landing. So if you were to kind of extrapolate backwards and look at where the ball started from the ground, then if you're throwing it at 45 degrees, then it would have actually started at a steeper angle from the ground. Does that make right, sense? Right, yeah. um, so, so then it's not really 
the optimal parabola anymore. But there are also a few other factors involved as well, which is, um, for example, the biomechanics of it. Because of our anatomy, the way that our muscles are arranged, we we can't actually throw with the same amount of force at each angle. And we can actually throw with a greater force if we throw at a lower angle than 45 degrees. Um, and throwing with a greater force kind of outweighs throwing at the theoretical optimal angle. Um, and air resistance also plays a role in real world scenarios. Right, right. You need to overcome that um, horizontally. So the real world is very different from from the basic <laughs> physics um, yeah, scenarios that we see in textbooks. Yeah, yeah. All right. So slightly, slightly <laughs> below 45 for the old discus. So Right, we've got three events to go, so I'm, I'm getting pretty exhausted at this point. I've got the pole vault, javelin, and 1,500 metres, so let's go for the pole vault. I've, I've never tried the pole vault, Laura. Have you Have you ever tried it? I've, I've, I'm no, I, I haven't. I think I'd, <laughs> I'd be quite scared, I think, um, jumping that high. Um, but um, for an athlete with a centre of mass one metre above the ground who can run at 10 metres per second, what is the theoretical limit to the pole vault height that they can clear? And why is the pole vault world record slightly above this? Ooh, well, I think the second bit must be something to do with the energy stored in the um, the pole itself, I guess, that you kind of have a sort of elastic uh-huh. bounce that, sorry, I'm not expressing this at all well, that kind of gets you that little bit further. <laughs> um, the theoretical best height, uh, no idea. Is it 10 metres? So using those... Yeah, using those numbers that um that I I just stated um and equating the kinetic energy of someone running at ten meters per second to the um the gravitational potential energy, you get a change in height of about five point one meters. Um, and adding the initial center of mass being at about say one meter for an average athlete, this gives a theoretical maximum of about six point one meters that somebody could could reach. The world record is actually currently 6.18 metres. Um, so there are a few reasons why that extra height um, is allowed. So um, one of the things is, like you said, um, kind of the pushing off afterwards, the athlete adds extra energy into the system. When the pole straightens and they push off it, um, that adds extra energy that isn't... Um, you know, that's separate from the kinetic energy that they had initially, um, an additional. And also, um, they use a similar technique to the high jumpers that we were talking about earlier. Um, a lot of the time, their centre of mass doesn't actually go over the bar. Ah, okay. So um, they sort of sling over again right. as well. So when I said 10 metres, for a physicist, that six is about 10 in terms of orders of magnitude. So I'll pretend I'll, yeah. I'll pretend I got that order, <laughs> order <right>. of magnitude. <laughs> All right, so a little bit over six. So, right. That's no, that's that's really interesting. Uh, and then, yeah, two questions to go. So, javelin. I think I know, I've seen this one. I think I know the answer to this one. But yeah, fire away with the question. So, this involves um, a redesigning of the javelin, which happened in 1986. Um, the men's javelin was redesigned so that the centre of mass was moved about four centimetres closer to the tip of the javelin. Um, and the women's javelin was actually similarly redesigned a little bit later in 1999. Which two problems prompted this redesign and how did it solve them? 
Ooh, so the two problems, I think one problem was definitely that people were sending the javelin far too far and it was kind of going over the 100 metre mark and kind of potentially uh-huh. maiming spectators at the other end of the track. I think that was one problem. Uh-huh. That getting a bit dangerous. It was getting too far, so that was one problem. The second one, I don't know. Um, so the, shall yeah, I tell on. you? So the second problem was because um, the javelin was actually often landing flat instead of pointing uh-huh. down into the ground. And then there was some ambiguity around what was a valid throw, whether a throw should count if it lands flat instead of pointing into the ground. So yeah, but when the centre of mass was moved towards the point of the javelin, this of course like changed the way that it changed its trajectory. It it made it point down sooner and that that made it both land less far away so it wasn't dangerous anymore it wasn't going into the audience it reduced the distance it was traveling right. and also it increased the likelihood that the javelin would land point down right. so i wonder what happened to all the world records presumably somebody had a world record that was not, never to be broken again or are there different sets of world records that pre the redesign and post the redesign i'm i'm not sure i know they've got all of them recorded i don't know whether they they have a world record that counts as the world record forever from before that redesign, or whether they only count them as the ones after the redesign. Right. That's a good question. I should look yeah, that up. Yeah, okay. All right, so right on the last event, so it's the 1500 metres, so that's the sort of final event of the decathlon. It's the one I always quite enjoy watching because they're never the fastest people, the, um, the sort of decathletes, as far as I remember. And often they're sort of playing for points, aren't they? They kind of know where everyone stands. They they know what they need to do to win. So it's um so go on, what's your what's your question about the the fifteen hundred meters? So interestingly, um as well as the the decathletes, um the fifteen hundred meter individual runners are quite strategic as well and quite tactical. And this question relates to the um the individual fifteen hundred meters, which happened at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and it was actually the slowest 1500 meter Olympic event since 1932. And of course, we're used to seeing things getting better over the years. Each year, people running faster and jumping higher and throwing further and so on. So why is this event actually seeming to get slower? So I guess it's to do with what I said about the tactics. The race is much more of a tactical thing. It's also a cat and mouse. Um, People Uh don't go flat out to win it. Because I think if you do that, you might get caught. Uh Is is that the thinking? So people are jostling and, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, toing and froing, jostling for position, trying to sort of play the game and sort of time your sprint at the end to sort of win it. Is that right? Because often you see the winners can come from far back in the pack and they sort of be watching who's out front. Is that is that the answer? Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's exactly right. It's very strategic. And they're often not trying to run it in the shortest time they can. They're, they're aiming to win, um, especially at the, the Olympics compared with other various championships. So they want to conserve their energy by running as slowly as they can throughout the race. So the ideal position is actually to be just behind the person in the lead. And then, you know, to strike out at the end and having conserved your energy compared with the people in front of you to have this sprint finish and overtake everyone. Um, But this means that no one actually wants to be the person at the front at the beginning. Um, No one wants to strike out and be in the lead because that would mean wasting energy compared with the other athletes. 
So none of them end up running very fast initially because none of them wants to be in the lead. Well, that sounds the event for me if you don't have to do it too quickly. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you have to go quickly at the end. Oh, at the though. end, all right. All right, so that's the end of the decathlon. So did I, have I got my gold medal? Where, where do you think I stood, Laura, on that? Have I got a gold or it edging towards silver? What, what are you, you going to give me? <laughs> I think I think you can definitely have a silver. <laughs> silver, oh, okay. I'll, I'll take that. I'll have a silver in the physics uh, world Olympics. All right, Laura. So that's something to bear in mind for everyone watching the um, the Tokyo Olympics, which starts um, this week, 23rd of July. So I don't know what date the decathlon's on, but I'll definitely be keeping an eye out and uh, remembering some of your uh, top tips about the sport. So thanks, Laura. Thanks, Martine. You can find the quiz and the full answers in the Physics World blog post. A decathlon of questions on the physics of sport. Next, through the magic of the internet, Physics World's Hamish Johnston travels to Australia to meet three astrophysicists who are pushing at the limits of today's gravitational wave detectors. The LIGO-Virgo interferometers are famous for detecting the short, intense pulses of gravitational waves that are emitted in the final moments before pairs of black holes or neutron stars merge. But astrophysicists also want to use these huge facilities to observe much fainter signals from objects such as rapidly rotating neutron stars. I'm joined down the line by members of the Australian Research Council's Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, or OSGRAV, which has just released its latest results in the search for continuous gravitational waves from neutron stars. They are Meg Milhouse and Lucy Strang at the University of Melbourne, and Carl Vetta at the Australian National University. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Hi, thank you for having us. So Meg, why do you expect neutron stars to emit continuous gravitational wave signals? So in order to get gravitational waves that are strong enough for our current detectors to possibly see, um, you need things that bend space-time by a lot. Um, so very compact objects. So these are like neutron stars and binary black holes, um, which you had mentioned we've seen many of before with LIGO and Virgo. Um, but we've seen gravitational waves that are emitted by pairs of those objects in sort of like the last moments as they're spiraling in towards each other. Um, we could also get gravitational waves from isolated rotating objects. In this case, that could only be neutron stars. Um, so you need, in order to get gravitational wave emission, um, you need, in mathier terms, you need a time-varying quadrupole moment in the mass. Um, in less mathy terms, you need something that's lumpy. Um, and general relativity says that we don't expect black holes to be lumpy in any way. But neutron stars are made of matter, and they have these sort of rigid crests, and those could have some sort of deformity that take them away from, you know, perfectly spherical. Um, and, you know, there have been some earlier predictions that show you could potentially get these, sometimes people call them mountains on neutron stars, um, that would be big enough to potentially detect with the detectors we have. Um, and when I say mountains on neutron stars, that's sort of an overstatement. It's sort of deformities on the order of, at most, millimeters. Um, they're, they're, very, they're actually very small deformities. Um, but so, you know, there's predictions that we can get gravitational waves from neutron stars with those sort of mountains. And in terms of, you know, whether or not LIGO could actually see them, 
Um, there are lots of electromagnetic observations of neutron stars, mainly of pulsars, um, that show, you know, they have rotation rates around, they have rotational periods of about milliseconds. Um, and that does fall nicely in the frequency range where LIGO is sensitive. So similar to telescopes in ENM, where we can only see one part of the gravitational wave frequency spectrum. Um, but we have lots of observations of neutron stars that show we would expect them to be emitting gravitational waves in that frequency. Wow, that, that that's incredible! Um, su- such a tiny deviation from uh, for, you know from a sphere, and and you're hoping to be able to uh, to detect that. So, so Lucy, in in your latest study, um, you've targeted 15 neutron stars um, that have recently formed in in supernovas. Um, what's special about about these particular objects? Um, why do you expect them to um, to be broadcasting strong continuous wave signals? Excellent question. So as Meg just explained, in general, we expect that a neutron star with some kind of lump is going to be able to emit continuous gravitational waves that we might be able to detect. An extra thing we can add to that is if we compare two isolated neutron stars that started exactly the same and one is a lot younger than the other, we expect the younger star to emit louder gravitational waves because we expect it to be lumpier, which means right away we want to go around looking for young neutron stars. We target young supernova remnants for this because it means we have a measurement of exactly where one of these neutron stars is, even if we can't see the exact rotation frequency. This allows us to define the parameters of our search and maximize our chances of making a detection. And LIGO, Virgo, they're not, I mean, they're not like telescopes. You, you can't actually, well, you don't point them, do you? So, so how, do you, how do you actually ensure that you're looking at um, a certain place in the sky using the facilities? So we can't point them in the traditional sense of literally picking a telescope up and tilting it in the direction we want. But when we get the data, we do have a a series of mathematical transformations we can apply based on where in the sky we think a source is and also how far away we think that source is, which means even if the raw data isn't pointed at a particular location, we can apply these basic transformations, and all of a sudden we have the data as if we had been pointing a telescope there. Now, Carl, um, these signals that you're looking for, they're much weaker than um, the signals that are seen from merging black holes and neutron stars. How do you use um, the LIGO-Virgo detectors to, to observe these signals? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, so there's a, there's a few differences between um, the signals from merging black holes and neutron stars that we've already detected um, and these continuous signals that we're, we're trying to look for. So one difference, as you said, is the, is the strength of the signal. So for the, the collisions of black holes and neutron stars, you have these two very massive objects coming together in a giant explosion. Whereas for the continuous signals, we're really thinking about um, a, a rotating neutron star, which is very slightly deformed. So it's like a, a, back, a, a very low background hum. Um, so the, the signal strengths are quite different. Um, but the other difference, so that kind of works in a, um, against us in being able to find them. But the, the advantage is that in contrast to the, the black hole uh, neutron star collisions, which last for maybe a, a fraction of a second or a few minutes, um, these continuous signals are always there. They're always kind of they're humming in the background. Um, hence, hence the name continuous. That's where it where it comes from. Um, uh, so if we if we can sort of uh, keep observing um, or keep analyzing the data for a long period of time, we can slowly build up 
the power in that signal where we where we think it is, and we can we can slowly suppress the noise. So, if we have our detectors which um, are observing for for a year or more, we can we can slowly kind of extract that very weak signal out of the data. Um, but this is this is is quite a technical uh, challenge. So there's there's a lot of thought we have to think about about the algorithms we use, um, and in particular, if we were to use the what was theoretically the most optimal um, data analysis method to do this, that isn't actually possible. We would need you know the, all the computing power in the world for thousands of years. So it's it's quite simply impossible. So we really need to think about very carefully about algorithms which are able to to process this data in a, in a you know in a, in a human lifetime essentially. So that's the that's the other side of this problem apart from the, the very interesting astrophysics is this data analysis kind of big data challenge um, which is very exciting to work on. And I think the, the these neutron stars are rotating r- rather quickly, aren't they? Which uh, I'm guessing means you're looking at a fairly high frequency signal. Are, are LIGO and Virgo are, are they set up to to detect um, those sort of frequencies, or are you sort of at at the fringe of of, of sensitivity? Um, so they're not ideally uh, set up to detect these kind of signals. So most of our knowledge that we we know about continuous wave potential continuous wave sources come from observing known pulsars. Uh, so a pulsar is a, is a neutron star which emits um, electromagnetic radiation, uh, most commonly radio. Um, and these have been detected for um, since the, the 1950s, I think, so so for, for decades now. So we know a lot, a lot about um, these types of sources. Most of them are, are actually spin quite slowly, so around once per second or even slower. Um, so they're kind of at the one hertz frequency level below, um, and unfortunately, that's where the the LIGO detectors and and the the Virgo detectors initially aren't quite as sensitive because at that level you get a lot of um, seismic interference from from ground motion, from people moving around, um, all sorts of um, of um, interference that that shakes our detector in the way that we don't want. Uh, so ideally, we want to find a source which is spinning a bit more quickly. Um, so the best part of our spectrum is around about hundreds of hertz, and there are a few neutron stars which which spin at those frequencies. So that gives us hope that there could be a continuous wave signal in that band as well. And, and Lucy, how, how has the study gone? Have have you spotted any continuous wave signals so far? Sadly, no, we haven't found anything so far, which was not surprising. We went in well aware of the probability of making a detection. But what we have been able to do is we have been able to quantify exactly how loud those signals could be. Because if they were any louder than a certain threshold, we would have a certain probability of detecting them. So based on that, we're able to make some fairly strong statements about how loud these signals were. And then from there, we can look into inferring some of the underlying properties of these stars that could have been generating them. And so, Carl, um, so, sort of following up on that question, um, have you managed to put constraints on on the properties of neutron stars that you were looking at? I'm guessing you're interested in the the equation of state of the neutron star, which is a, a bit of a mystery. W- w- what have you learned so far? Yeah, and indeed, we are. That's that's one of the things that we're most interested in. Um, uh, so, so because we don't know a lot about continuous wave sources yet, because we haven't detected them. We need to sort of pursue a lot of different strategies to, to make that first detection. One thing that we do is, is we look at um, some of the known pulsars that are, that are interesting to us. One that's been tic- particularly interesting that we've been looking at recently is, um, it has this name, uh, J0537-6910. 
Uh, that's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, as a practical use, and that the the numbers give the coordinates of where to find that pulsar on the sky. So it's a it's a useful name rather than a memorable one. But what's interesting about this pulsar is that it's a it's an X-ray pulsar. So what that means is that there's a bright spot on the surface of the neutron star which emits X-rays, and that rotates round and round like a lighthouse. So if you have an X-ray telescope, and the most recent observations have come from a telescope called NISA, which is basically a fridge-sized detector which is mounted on the International Space Station. By observing this kind of lighthouse of X-rays, you can track the rotation of this pulsar and you can track its behavior over time. And what people have learned from that is that there is there is quite strong evidence that this pulsar might be radiating gravitational waves, continuous gravitational waves, in a form called R-modes. Now, R-modes you can think of as being like giant ocean waves on the surface of the neutron star. Um, so if you imagine if the Earth had no continents and there was just a giant wave that kept going round and round and round. Um, and if those are set up correctly to, to kind of resonate in a special way, you can get quite large gravitational emission from these, these particular types of oscillations. And there's been some theoretical predictions which have actually shown that um, we should have, depending on what we assume about the, the physics of neutron stars, um, we should have been able to detect a signal from our latest observations. So, of course, we were very interested in this, and we, we, we ran our analysis on the latest um, data from, from LIGO and Virgo. Um, and unfortunately, as, as Lucy said, we haven't made a detection. But what's been very interesting is that from that non-detection result, we've been able to exclude certain models of these R-mode emission uh, mechanisms. And that directly translates into um, some understanding of, of the neutron star and its, its equation of state. So this is, this is really quite an exciting place for us to be in. This is one of the, the few times where, even though we haven't been able to make a detection, we're actually saying something about neutron physics, which is really quite exciting. So there's another strategy which we pursue, which instead of looking at you know, particular points in the sky where we know there's a pulsar, um, we do these kind of eyes wide open surveys. So we look across the, the entire sky and, and a, lot, a broad range of possible signal frequencies to find a neutron star that we don't know about. So the estimates are that there's approximately a billion or so neutron stars in the galaxy, but we only observe a few thousand of them as pulsars. So there's a huge number of neutron stars that are out there, and we don't really know what they're doing. So the hope is that maybe a few of them are radiating gravitational waves, and that by detecting them, we'll be giving um, insights into that population of, of neutron stars that you wouldn't be able to get from, from looking at um, the known pulsars that we've found so far. So those, those searches, these all-sky these, all surveys are, are less sensitive than the ones we can do for known pulsars. As I alluded to before, it takes more computer time to, to point at different points in the sky. Um, but the, the upside is they may find something that we didn't expect to find. Um, and that's, that's really the, the really exciting prospect of this field is that um, we're really probing the unknown. Uh, my, my final observation might be that um, uh, we're still looking at uh, some, of the, some of the data from the latest observations that we've had. So we're hoping that that's in, in, the, in the remaining of the year we'll have more papers coming out. So, and then and next year there'll be further upgrades to the LIGO detectors, which will make them more sensitive. So this is a, it's an ongoing story and it's an exciting thing to be part of. Well, it sounds like it's, a, it's sort of a multi-messenger astronomy operation. It's not just you know, data from LIGO Virgo. If, if, for example, you know, you were very lucky and tomorrow or the next day there was a, a, a supernova explosion, um, would you be very keen at, at looking for gravitational signals that are emitted just after the explosion and, and, and you know, just when the, the neutron star is formed? 
Um, so it depends where that uh, neutral, um, when that supernova is. Um, if it's within the, if it's within the galaxy, then then absolutely, um, that could be something that that's that we would definitely go after. Um, fortunately, because because the the continuous wave signals we're looking for are, are much weaker, our range of of things that we can so our, our sensitive distance that we can see out to um, is really constrained to be the the galaxy that we're in. So we can't really see things outside the galaxy. But certainly, it's something that's that we'd be very interested in looking at. Yeah. So yeah. So gravitational radiation supernovae, that you know, can kind of come in a couple of different varieties. So the supernova explosion, supernova explosion itself, or core collapse supernova, um, will emit sort of a shorter burst of gravitational wave radiation. So that would be more like the binary neutron stars and binary black holes we've seen so far. Um, and that, of course, would also be a very exciting uh, discovery. And you could do multi messenger both from uh, EM observations as well as possibly neutrino. Um, but then after that initial explosion, um, if there is a neutron star left over, you know, not every supernovae will lead to a neutron star remnant. Um, but then that neutron star remnant could talk, remnant can possibly emit continuous gravitational waves. Um, and, you know, so those very young supernova remnants um, can be tricky to look for too because they could be spinning down very quickly. Um, and if you don't know exactly what frequency you're looking at or how fast it's spinning down, it can become a very tricky uh, search. And, and so, Meg, um, do, do you expect uh, continuous wave signals to emerge ultimately from from LIGO Virgo data as as your observation time increases, or do, do you think that you may have to wait for um, you know further upgrades to these detectors or even next generation instruments? I mean, I can't give a definite answer as to yes or no whether we'll detect gravitational wave uh, continuous gravitational waves. Um, but one thing that is different about these continuous wave searches as opposed to the binary black hole searches is even if the detectors don't improve in sensitivity, the longer we observe, the higher our chances of sort of digging that signal out of the noise. So even in a less optimal scenario where the detectors stay the same sensitivity, if we just keep observing for several more years, um, we will be building up evidence for these signals that are hopefully in our data um, and you could possibly make a detection. I mean, that also means that the first sort of continuous wave detection might not be some, you know, super fancy, very loud, you know, exactly what it is signal. It might be more of a, here's something that we can't quite rule out as an instrumental artifact, but we can't quite uh, say for sure it's a signal. And the more we observe, uh, the more evidence we get that it is a true signal. Um, but then, yes, we, you know, and the likelihood of detecting these continuous wave signals will increase as we get sort of the next generation of detectors. So, you know, there's planning ongoing right now for what we call the third generation of detectors, um, uh, maybe 20 or 30 years down the line. I can't remember the exact timeline, but those will be much more sensitive. Um, and by then, I think there should be, a be definitely a better likelihood of detecting these signals. Um, and even if they don't, you know, you can still place really interesting constraints on, you know, how much these neutron stars can deform that can teach you about what's inside the neutron stars, um, you know, as well as placing more constraints on those R modes. Um, and, you know, too, the more we observe, we're also, uh, you know, finding better uh, computational techniques so we can search more of the sky where we don't necessarily already see a neutron star, um, and that can open up our parameter space of what we could see considerably as well. 
Well, that's great. It sounds like uh, an exciting future for um, for looking for uh, continuous uh, wave signals from uh, from neutron stars and and for Osgrav as well. Um, thanks to everyone for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And if you'd like to find out more about Osgrav and its work on neutron stars, just check out their website, osgrav.org. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Meg Millhouse, Lucy Strang, Carl Vetter, Hamish Johnston, Laura Hiscott and Mateen Girani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, I can highly recommend our recent Physics World Stories podcast, Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World, which features two scientists involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favourite podcast app. Physics World.